Hey there, dog people of the internet. I'm Sarah Stremming, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I share my thoughts, experiences, and cases as I interview experts and answer your questions when it comes to the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. It's a new year and I have a news flash. Black lives still matter. I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. I have some exciting news for you. I've teamed up with my friend and colleague, Marissa Martino of Pause and Reward to present a three-part webinar series called The Connection Summit, Prioritizing the Human-Canine Bond for Successful Behavior Change. The series runs from February 23rd to March 9th. It airs Tuesday night each of those weeks at 5 p.m. Pacific. The first class is on the general mindset shift needed to allow focusing on the human canine bond to facilitate behavior change. The second is all about my concept, the four steps to behavioral wellness. And the third is Marissa's six principles of relationship building for dogs and their people. So I hope you'll join us and there's a registration link in the show notes. At the risk of sounding like a broken record here, I'm going to talk to you today about the four steps to behavioral wellness. And the reason is I reference it all the time, but I realize I don't have an entire podcast episode dedicated to it, and I've been asked for one. So I figured, you know, how easy is that? Let me just talk about something that I know like the back of my hand. The four steps to behavioral wellness is something that I developed around 10 years ago, working with behavior clients um, in their homes, pet, pet owners in their homes. And they are, the four steps are exercise, enrichment, nutrition, and communication. And in my early case studies, as well as my recent case studies on the podcast, you hear about how I apply those four steps with all of my client dogs. There isn't a single client dog that comes to me where we don't discuss the four steps. It's always at the forefront of my mind. And so the first step exercise is not about marching your dog around the block for a certain number of miles a day. It's also not about putting your dog on a treadmill. And it's not even about fitness. It's not about doing workouts to build strength, although that could be an important piece of your dog's life. Exercise for me is about free movement in nature. Exercise for me is about decompression. So the term decompression walk is one that describes the type of walk I'd like you to take with your dog to help them to ease into the stressors of their lives. There's ample research on why exposure to nature lessens mental health problems in humans. That research does not exist in dogs because the same kind of funding doesn't exist for research like that in dogs. But I would imagine that you would find really similar things. And in my career, implementing off-leash exercise, yes, off-leash, I did say free movement in nature, has solved a lot of problems. It has also brought a lot of criticism to my door. Um, People are angry that I want them to unclip the leash. 
they cry about how it's not safe and they um, really, you know, put me against the wall and say, but it's illegal. Are you really telling people to break the law, Sarah? And here's the, here's the answer. No, I'm not telling you to break the law. And I'm also not telling you that you have to unclip that leash if you don't feel safe. I am telling you what I think best practices are. And best practices, as far as I'm concerned, for the vast majority of dogs, so certainly not all, but the vast majority of dogs, is off-leash time in nature as a prescription to help them cope with just the fact that being a dog in our lives in suburbia is hard. And when you think about the life of a natural dog, the life of a dog that lives freely and makes its own choices, and these dogs exist um, in great numbers throughout the world, but not in super high numbers in the United States. So these dogs live freely in villages, um, or they might roam the streets um, of cities and hang out near garbage dumps. These natural populations of dogs walk a lot during the day. They just do. And if they live in cities, they might not walk in nature, but they do walk a lot. They you know, simply if you put a mileage tracker on one of those dogs and compared the lengths they go to every day to just acquire food, water, shelter, and then you put one on your dog, you might be appalled at the difference. I know that in my own personal dogs, I start to see behavior problems crop up if they don't get at least three off-leash walks in nature a week. Um, my older dogs can definitely deal with less than that, but my younger dogs need about that much to not have problems with each other, to not have problems with barking excessively at triggers. Things like that um, are really, really evident in my own personal dogs. And if you're interested in how this might help a client of mine, I urge you to go back and listen to the three-part episodes uh, on Tonic, so the case study on the Border Collie named Tonic, as well as go all the way back to the beginning and listen to the episodes about Jade, the Golden Retriever. And you will see how exercise was the biggest piece of what we got done with those dogs. We did a lot of other work. But without the exercise, we wouldn't have been, we would not have been as successful. The next step, enrichment, is defined as, you know, the allowance to express species-specific behaviors. I'm going to even go so far as to say breed-specific behaviors. We think a lot of the time of enrichment as, you know, food puzzles or um, going to nose work class, things like that. And those are the expression of species-specific behaviors because scenting and foraging or scavenging for food are definitely species-specific for dogs and things that they need to be doing. For me, enrichment looks like making sure that my dog's daily caloric intake definitely counts. I don't put food in a bowl and hand it to them. I can put food in a puzzle bowl, I can put food in a Kong or a topple. So I do frozen meals in the morning in a hard rubber toy like a Kong or a topple. And then their evening meal tends to come from a slow feeder. Um, so one of those kind of labyrinth looking bowls. And then throughout the day, they're earning food through interactions with me through training. And all of those things are just making sure that their daily caloric intake counts towards enriching their own lives. 
when I have dogs that are kind of lacking confidence or are destructive or, you know, any number of behavior problems that to me feel like a lack of enrichment problem, I cultivate the kind of enrichment experience for them that I think is going to help them best. So if I've got a puppy that's kind of lacking confidence, we're going to do a lot of what I call dog-guided bravery, which is food that is stashed in an obstacle course. So they've got to navigate things in order to find the food. And it might start out as simple as walking across a tarp to eat kibble. And then it may graduate to that tarp being on top of an X-Pen. And then it may graduate to um, the tarp is draped across an X-Pen, which is stacked across, you know, pieces of fitness equipment. So they got to jump on it and it's going to wobble and so on and so forth. And as long as it's safe, I want it to be challenging. So enrichment for me tends to feel like just making sure that I'm providing my dog with enough brain stuff to do. So enough things to think about, enough puzzles to kind of fill their day and respecting the fact that dogs have a brain and they should get to use it every single day. Just like the type of enrichment I like acknowledges that they've got muscles and bones that were designed to carry them across great distances and we should allow them to do that if we can. So the next one is nutrition. And this is not one that I'm super qualified to talk about. And so I'm not, I'm gonna go in depth on details here. And that's because I'm not a nutritionist and I'm not a veterinarian. Really, really frequently in my caseload, dogs are not being fed appropriately. How do I know they're not being fed appropriately? Because their GI is not working appropriately. It is not normal for your dog to have vomiting and diarrhea every single week or God forbid, every single day. But you would be amazed how many dogs come to work with me and I find out that that's exactly what they're experiencing, chronic GI upset. It's blamed on their breed, it's blamed on having kind of a nervy temperament, or it's not even considered at all to be a problem. It is a problem. So if that's happening, you need to work closely with your dog's medical team to find the right diet for them. I do believe in fresh food diets. I've been feeding fresh food diets for the last 10 years with really, really great results. I have fed both raw and cooked fresh food diets, always with a nutritionist in my back pocket, always trying to do the very best that I can, and always looking at the dog in front of me. Is their GI working? Are their teeth in good condition? Is their hair coat in good condition, right? How does the dog look and how does the dog operate? That's how you know if they're being fed appropriately. And so I encourage you strongly to investigate this piece further if your dog has chronic GI upset, chronic skin infections, ear infections. If the dog simply does not feel good, then the dog cannot behave well. And I don't know about you, but I have a really specific um, food allergy. I have celiac, and so I'm, I cannot eat wheat gluten. If I do on accident, I never do on purpose. This is such a severe issue that I would never just kind of quote-unquote cheat the way that some people kind of talk about it if they are kind of gluten-free by choice. I don't do that. If I get glutened, as I call it, by a restaurant or a person cooking for me who didn't understand or something like that, um, if that happens, 
I experience a lot of symptoms and I will be more aggressive. So I am more likely to, because of those symptoms, have a panic attack or completely come unglued on a person I love. Sounds like a lot of the dogs that I work with. They eat, they don't feel good, they attack. Or they eat, they don't feel good, they have a panic attack. Or they eat, they don't feel good, they hide in the back of their crate for a day, right? So it's really, really important that we dig in on that issue and we don't ignore it and we don't think of it as, you know, well, I feed an AFCO-approved kibble and therefore dogs should be fine. Or I feed the kibble I've always fed and therefore dogs should be fine. Or even I feed the fresh food diet I've always fed and therefore dogs should be fine. So nutrition matters. It matters a lot. And I pay really, really close attention to it. And I'm always adjusting as needed. And the final one is communication. And I think that communication is something that I'm always talking about on this podcast because this is basically a podcast about communicating with dogs, right? And, and about communicating with them better than we already are. So the key pieces here are to understand how behavior works and to understand that positive reinforcement is the kindest and most effective tool for behavior change that we have. And then to use it intelligently, because let me tell you, positive reinforcement, which is the, simply the process by which behavior increases due to appetitive consequences. So basically what that means is stuff the dog likes happens when they do this behavior and therefore they do that behavior more. That feels really simple, but the, the nuanced and complex ways that we can apply it are endlessly fascinating to me and I will continue to be a student of that for the rest of my life. A couple of things that come to mind for me would be Kathy Sedeo's concept SMART times 50. And SMART, SMART in this instance stands for see, mark, and reward training. And then the times 50 just means you're aiming to do it 50 times a day. And here's what this looks like. You count out 50 pieces of food and you put it in a jar somewhere in your house. And at the top of each day, you are watching your dog for behaviors that you like, that you want to see continue. And when you see that behavior, you say something to the dog that means I'm going to feed you now. You could say yes. Or if you are crazy and have eight dogs like I do, you just say their name. And then you go and you get a cookie and give it to them. Or a piece of kibble in my case. I don't feed kibble as their daily meal, but I definitely feed kibble as, as a treat for Smart Times 50. And this simple practice has improved my life and has improved the lives of every single client that I've convinced to implement it successfully. It simply increases the positive reinforcement in your dog's life and it increases positive reinforcement for behaviors that you're interested in. And increased positive reinforcement is good for everybody. Um, it, can, it could be speculated that depression can be defined as a chronic lack of positive reinforcement in one's life. And some of the dogs that I've worked with, I feel look depressed. They seem like they might be experiencing something like depression. And when we implement Smart Times 50, they're not anymore. They're brighter, they're happier, they're, they're moving their feet more. They are doing things with their body more. It serves all of us to be able to act on our environment 
and then reap the benefits of that. That's the purpose of behavior. And so when you make that work for you by doing something like smart times 50, you are really elevating your communication with your dog. Another one would be is the use of markers in your training. Um, a marker is a bridging stimulus. That's kind of the fancier name for it. Or simply something that informs the dog that reinforcement's on its way. So in my Smart Times 50 example, the marker was you saying yes, or in my case, saying my dog's names. If you get smart about using markers in your life, about telling the dog exactly when they're right with a specific and consistent word or sound, everything gets better because everything gets more clear. They're nonverbal species, so we have to really help them by making sure that we're very consistent. Because if I'm working with a human client, I can say to them, oh, you nailed it that time, great job. And then the next rep, I can say, oh, you're a machine, that was awesome. And they understand both times that they got it right. But my dog doesn't if I talk to him like that. And so I need to talk to him in such a way that tells him exactly when he got it right and exactly what's coming to him. So for me, that might be a clicker. I'm a huge fan of clickers for a lot of different training projects. Not all of them, but for a lot of different training projects. And I will click when my dog gets something right and then deliver that food reinforcer. I also... Um, have specific words that mean you're that mean you're getting a toy now. So for Felix, I will say the word G-E-T, and he's in the office right now with me, so I'm not gonna say that because he will pop up and he will have an expectation that I cannot meet. And that means you're gonna get to bite a toy. And that's about the most exciting thing that he could possibly hear. And so I can put that to work for me in a lot of different scenarios. And finally, get smart about cueing understand that there are cues present all the time for our dogs and that one of the best ways to communicate more effectively with them is to understand cues and understand when we are presenting a cue that is unclear and really to understand how a cue should be clear if it's to be verbal only it needs to sound the same every time it cannot be sit 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 it cannot be all those things it needs to be sit every single time. If it is a combination word and hand signal, a compound cue, you need to use both cues every single time together. If you don't want it to be a compound cue, you need to be really, really aware of all of the physical prompts and environmental cues and contextual cues that exist as you're trying to condition that verbal cue. So understanding that there's always cues to your dog that tell them where reinforcement might lie. So I kind of think of this as as kind of a video game and you're walking down a trail and there's like a green light over to the right, which tells you that there could be something over there. And then there's an orange light over to your left. And then maybe there's a yellow light up ahead. And what the game is indicating to you is that there are different reinforcers available down different paths. And this is where your dog lives. Your dog is constantly seeing that there are different cues telling him what behaviors will earn reinforcement happening all the time. And so it's really important for us to lay that groundwork and put a lot of positive reinforcement behind the cues that matter to us. So an example of that might be Felix is walking with me on a trail. He sees a dog coming towards us up ahead. That's a cue to go up and say hi and sniff that dog. 
There also might be a pile of horse poop on the side of the road that we're walking down, and that's a cue for him to go eat that or roll in it, For and that's a highly reinforcing scenario for him. And what I'd like him to do is recall instead, come to me, leave both of those big opportunities behind and come to me. And so in order for that to actually happen, my cue has got to be clear, it's got to be well conditioned before I try to put it to work, and then my payout my payout for him has got to be big and not only does it have to be big in that instance it has to have been consistently big he has to have consistently expected big money when he hears that word in order for that to really work for us I'm proud of my dog's recalls and part of it is my understanding of this process and it's just another form of communication Exercise, enrichment, nutrition, and communication is kind of the order that I tend to to tell them in. And I think that they're really important. And I think focusing on each of these areas helps to avoid as well as eliminate most common behavior problems in our dogs. All right, I've got a few Patreon questions for you. This first one comes from Lucy, who writes... Hi, Sarah. As background, I audited your Teenage Tyrants course, and my question comes from a couple of your comments I saw on there regarding toy play. So the first question, you gave feedback about not touching a dog while tugging. Why is this? It seems that the smack the baby method while tugging is very common. I've had it sold to me, but haven't sold myself on it as it helps build arousal and gets the dog used to being touched. Why is the touch while tug method so common still if it's no longer considered the best practice? Lucy, I'm really happy that you asked this question. Um, And the first thing I want to say is that my advice here is in the minority. So the reason that it's still really recommended is because it is considered best practice still. I just don't consider it best practice. And there's a few reasons for that. And I'm going to call out um, the two reasons that are cited for doing it, which you just said, which is it builds arousal or drive, and it gets the dog used to being touched. Number one, I get my dogs used to being handled in very different ways. I don't actually want any arousal um, going on when I'm doing body handling and body touching. I want calm, eating, happy stable when the dog is being handled. So for me, touching a dog while tugging is never a way that I'm going to achieve that goal and never a way that I want to achieve that goal. As far as building arousal, I'm going to argue that we need to look at behaviors here rather than think about this construct arousal um, or the construct drive, which is the other thing I've heard. What it actually does is it causes these behaviors. It causes uh, tighter biting, so harder biting, harder pulling on the toy, growling, and sometimes more kill thrashing. Um, so the really vicious kind of shaking back and forth that happens. And those behaviors have been kind of labeled desirable by agility people because they look like drive or they look like arousal. And I'm going to argue... I'm going to put another construct on it, and I'm going to argue that they're irritated by you touching them, especially by you slapping them, which is what you're specifically referencing. Most dogs are irritated by that, and what you're seeing, in my humble opinion, is anger, maybe frustration, not 
what I would call drive and certainly not what I would call joy of the game or what I would call genuine play, which is a hint to your next question. So how do I know this? Well, I've tested it. I've tested it actually across the globe. There are some dogs, very rare dogs, that like for you to push on them and sort of be um, be a stronger opponent in the fight that is tug. Those dogs are usually bred for fighting. So I'm talking bully breeds, terriers, things like that. Um, some dogs might kind of wiggle and get a little happy face if you just swipe down their side while you're playing tug. Those are usually the dogs that don't have a personal space bubble like retrievers. The dogs that are most commonly worked with um, in agility are border collies and other herding dogs. And I'm not saying that other dogs don't do agility, but the most common breeds for agility are herding breeds. And to date, I've not found a herding breed that enjoys this. And to date, I've not found a single dog that likes being smacked or slapped during tug. And here's how I know. I do, um, I do a game with dogs where I teach them to return the toy to me because I want voluntary toy returns to remove the conflict out of my toy reinforcers. And the way that I do this is I play a little bit of tug and then I let go and I back away. And I watch the dog's choice. And every single time, the world over, I have watched a handler slap their dog and then let go of the tug the dog leaves with the tug and it takes them a second to come back once they're given possession of the tug. And when I change it, when I step in and say to the handler, now I want you to play like this and I specifically have them play um, with the dog in a neutral spine, tugging side to side, not up and down and don't touch the dog. Keep your hands off, keep your hands on the toy. Now the dog brings the toy back. This has been remarkably consistent and so since these are constructs, since arousal and drive and anger, what I said, are constructs, we need to look at the behaviors behind them. And for me, if the dog doesn't bring you the toy back readily because you or when you are slapping at them or pushing on them, then we can absolutely say that returning the tug to you is not being reinforced. When you stop slapping them and you just play and they do return the tug, then we can say that that kind of toy play is reinforcing. So that's why I don't do that. And I am slowly watching it kind of die out as an idea as I bring it up and people kind of go, wait, oh, you know, I thought my dog didn't like that, but I was always told that that's what I should do. Um, I'm watching that the culture kind of shift there. And your next question, um, you say, you had mentioned that tug isn't considered play. What is considered play and why does tug not fall into that category? So I'm going to clarify what I said. We were specifically talking in the course about two dogs playing tug together. And I do not see that as an appropriate form of play between two dogs, especially because tugging is kind of is play fighting it's pretend fighting over a resource so it's kind of pretend version of you know maybe two wild canines tugging on a carcass to rip it in half right or to take one take it from the other one so it's a pretend action and that's actually what play is 
So play is um, kind of defined by different people different ways. One of the definitions of it is that it is um, pretend versions of real life things. And another way that it can be defined is that it's um, expenditure of energy that doesn't actually seem to have a purpose. When two dogs are tugging on a thing, I think the purpose is for one dog to win it. And I think, but I also think, so that, that makes it not play. But then I also think it is a pretend version of fighting over the thing, depending on the dogs, because sometimes it's real, right? So for my dogs, it can easily escalate into a real fight. <laughs> it goes from a pretend fight over a thing to a real fight over a thing. So it's not something I allow, which is specifically what I was talking about in the course. Tug between a person and a dog absolutely can be playful, but if it is taught with pushing and slapping and fighting and coercion as far as the person never lets the dog win the thing, then I'm going to say we're not talking about play anymore. So thanks, Lucy, so much for your question. Next one comes from Kayla. Hi, Kayla. Kayla says, I have a single border collie. I've had a single border collie for four years before bringing home my puppy in December. I've noticed he really wants to herd my adult dog on decompression walks. My adult dog, Barley, mostly takes the high road and seems mildly arced. He'll arc to avoid the puppy occasionally, but really takes it in stride quite well. I, however, am quite annoyed by this and don't think it's all that decompressing for any of us. The puppy, Niffler, is aroused and hurdy. Barley is getting interrupted and stalked and pounced on, and I'm fretting over when, if, to intervene. I've taken to walking them separately, but that's not long-term sustainable as a time management solution. Should I just let Border Collies be hurdy? Hope Barley corrects Niffler eventually. Using a long line on Niffler seems likely to build frustration. I'm just not quite sure. Kayla, it's a really good question. And to be honest, um, it's a common thing. It's so common, in fact, that I expect it, right? So you get a Border Collie puppy, you get him out off leash with other dogs. That's the first time he is loose with other moving animals. Of course, that's what he wants to do. You have to not allow that behavior pattern to begin. If you allow it to begin, it gets that dopamine hit. I'm calling out to Kim Brophy here um, and talking about these modal action patterns and the fact that they are likely fueled by these dopamine, um, these, these shots of dopamine to the brain. And understand that if it begins, even if you interrupt it, it still got paid, right? So it still got paid with that dopamine. And it becomes a pattern that you can't get rid of really quickly. So I would be walking them separate, number one. And I would understand that this isn't forever because you're doing a nice job of, I know that you're training Niffler for work and you're doing a lot of training with him. Do a lot of training on your decompression walks too, which is not usually what I say to be doing, but I, I would be doing that to build your walking relationship into something that is not about hurting mm -hmm. another dog. And then slowly bring them both together for what I would call training walks. Okay, so maybe Barley is on leash next to you, so he's not as fun to herd, and you're feeding Barley a lot, and you're tossing food at Niffler for just walking. So you're building the right behaviors by arranging the antecedents um, and then laying in that groundwork of reinforcement. You should avoid it while you teach Niffler what his work in life is. And then when he understands what his work in life is, he won't be obsessing over hurting Barley so much. Best of luck and you know where to find me if this continues to be a huge problem for you. And that's it for this week. Cheers.
Thanks for listening. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. And if you're interested in supporting this podcast, as well as joining the CogDog Radio community, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio and become a patron for as little as $4 a month. I hope to see you there. Cheers. Cheers.